0: amen. Thank you, Troy. If only we had a sense of our neediness like that. We can't live a day without him. Well, Pastor Don and Nancy are away on vacation this week, so we certainly want to pray for their time away. But if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, that'll be our text for this morning. It's near the back of the book, and uh, don't hesitate to use the table of contents if you need. But before we get into our passage today, I want us to think for just a minute uh, about the author of this letter, the Apostle Peter. Uh, Peter is certainly one of Jesus' most famous disciples, most well known. Uh, But one of the things I love about Peter, as many have said, is how relatable he is. Uh, In a lot of ways, he's just a regular guy. You know, he has good moments, bad moments. uh, And he really embodies to me so much of the Christian life. Uh, He has times where he has great faith and confidence in God. And then there's other times where he really steps in it and really struggles uh, to trust and to believe. There are times where he really fears people more than anything else. And he exhibits uh, what theologians have called the fear of man. The fear of man could be summarized as a desire for the approval of other people or a fear of their disapproval that dominates our thoughts and actions, okay? Uh, perhaps you're familiar with this fear of other people. Well, think about Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed. So they're sitting around the table at dinner, and Peter's there with the rest of the disciples. And Peter makes this bold statement to Jesus He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Okay, that's a confident, bold statement. And so while they're sitting around the table, he can make that assertion. And initially, it seemed like in his own sort of misguided way, he was going to follow through on that. Uh, When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, uh, Peter was right there with his sword ready to fight. But then as the night went on, just a few short hours later, uh, as Jesus was chained up and taken to the high priest's house to put on trial, uh, Peter followed behind, and he was in the courtyard. And you can imagine the scene. As Peter's in the courtyard, it's late at night. It's been a, an intense night, the adrenaline is rushing. and he looks over and he sees Jesus being beaten and spit on and accused and about ready to be crucified. And that's when the fear set in. And the fear sets in for Peter, and you see it in his interactions in that moment. The servant girl came and asked him, hey, you were with Jesus, weren't you? He says, what? No, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And then another one came. No, I, I recognize your accent. You're one of them, aren't you? He said, man, I am not one of them. And then finally, someone recognized him from the garden. Said, so I saw you with him in the garden just earlier this night. He says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And of course, you remember the rooster crowed. Well, what changed in the span of just a few hours for Peter? Well, the answer is fairly obvious. It was the fear of man. Uh, He watched what was happening to Jesus and he said, I don't want any part of that. Okay, I don't want, I, I fear what they're going to do to me if I identify with him. So that was a weak moment for Peter. Uh, certainly a moment of failure that Jesus would later redeem. But now fast forward to the book of Acts. Okay? Think about uh, Peter maybe a few months later, however long uh, it would have been. This time Peter was preaching about Jesus and he's the one who got arrested. And get this, Peter was put on trial before the exact same people that Jesus was put on trial before, Annas and Caiaphas. And you can imagine... As Peter is himself arrested and walking to his trial, he probably passed by the same courtyard where he had previously denied Jesus. But this time the scene was very different. As he's standing there on trial, he stands up before the people, these people he was once very afraid of, and he says this in Acts 4. Rulers of the people and elders, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this Jesus is the stone rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow, that's a bold statement. These are the people who lobbied for Jesus to be crucified, and Peter's telling them to their face, you made the wrong choice. You rejected the Lord of glory, the giver of life. And now, the only way to be saved is to trust in his name, in the name of Jesus. Something massive had changed for Peter between the night Jesus was betrayed and the day of his own trial. What was that transformation? Well, that's precisely what he's going to talk about in our passage here today. The thing that made him go from fear to faith. So follow along, with you, as I read from 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, having been subjected to him. So our main idea this morning, we've actually already sung it a couple of times. Our main idea is because Jesus lives, we can face tomorrow. Or put another way, a longer way, because Christ has won the ultimate victory, we don't need to fear what people might do to us. And so this first paragraph is really for us as Christians to think about how we face tomorrow. And there's a lot of uncertainty about tomorrow for us, isn't there? Uh, you think about the culture we live in, uh, we've enjoyed a lot of material blessing uh, in our country as Christians. Uh, and certainly we still do. I mean, we're gathering freely this morning. There's a lot to be thankful for. But you can't help but think that persecution's never quite that far away. There's always uh, a temptation uh, to be too comfortable. With our present circumstances but one professor said uh, Edmund Clowney who uh, wrote a great commentary on 1st Peter uh, the quote will be up on the screen in just a minute he said churches today that experience little persecution need Peter's instruction in a future nearer than they suppose they may find themselves suffering with the rest of Christ's afflicted church in the world Now well, that's true Now, unlike our brothers and sisters in, say, uh, West Africa, we're not in danger of Boko Haram coming in and uh, kidnapping us at gunpoint and breaking up our gathering. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. But you have to admit there's been a shift in our culture. Uh, Maybe a generation or two ago, the culture was basically pro-Christian. It was generally a good thing to be a Christian in the culture. From there it shifted to sort of a neutral uh, the culture is becoming more what would be called post-christian where most people are not christian anymore but it's still seen as a uh, an okay thing to be a christian to now there's an increasing anti-christian sentiment in our culture uh, there just is and so we need to be aware of what peter's talking about here even though the threats don't seem as imminent or as severe Uh, it's still very much relevant for us today. And Peter's argument in this section, uh, it begins with a play on an assumption that we all hold. Uh, We all have this assumption about fairness in us. So we tend to think, okay, there's right and there's wrong. If you do what is right, you won't be punished. Uh, You might not always be rewarded, but at least you won't be punished. If you do wrong, on the other hand, you can expect to be punished. That's that's the assumption we all operate with. It's a a sense of fairness. And so the question is rhetorical. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Well, the obvious answer is no one. No one's going to punish you if you're doing what is right, what is good. But the reality for Peter's readers and for a lot of Christians today is that's simply not how life works. Life isn't fair. Uh, Sometimes people do wrong and they do get away with it for a time. And sometimes as Christians, we want to do what's right, what is good, what is God-honoring, and we find harm uh, as a result. So not always, but sometimes as Christians, we can count on suffering for doing what's right. It's really part of our calling that Peter already explained in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, that is, suffering while doing good, to that you have been called. And again, here he acknowledges the real possibility that we might suffer for righteousness' sake. The reality of life in a world that is hostile to God is that if we love God, and we want to honor God with our lives, we want to serve him, be loyal to him, we're going to find that hostility directed at us from time to time. Uh, We can just expect that that will be the case. And there's a measure of fear that comes with this, isn't there? Uh, There's a fear about what other people think of us as Christians. Uh, There's a fear about what they say behind our backs, or even what they might do to us if they found out what we really believed. And my guess is, if you're a Christian and you're here today, you know something of this fear. Let me ask you Do you ever find it difficult to talk about Jesus to a non Christian uh, friend or a coworker or neighbor? Do you find it difficult to bring his name up in conversation? Why do you think that is? Do you worry that you'll offend someone or lose a relationship if you speak up about what you really believe? Uh, say about what the Bible teaches about gender and sexuality? Those are the idols of our day. You touch a nerve in the culture when you talk about those things from a biblical perspective. Do you fear the outcome of the next election or the next court ruling or the next piece of legislation that's going to come down? These are all symptoms of the fear of man. Uh, So we can resonate with what Peter's talking about here, can't we? We can resonate with the thought... If I speak up for what's right, it could go badly for me. Okay, that's the fear that he's, he's addressing here. So we need his encouragement then, don't we? We need Peter's apostolic authoritative encouragement this morning. And here it is in verse 14. Don't fear these people. Don't be afraid of them. Even if you should suffer for doing what's right, you will be blessed. So don't be afraid of them. And Peter could say that confidently because of what we just heard from Pastor Doug a minute ago in the Beatitudes. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you think about being a Christian in this world. Uh, If we pursue righteousness, uh, we might not get very far materially. We might not become wealthy or powerful or anything like that. But there's something greater that we're holding out for, isn't there? It's long-term gain that outweighs the short-term suffering. That's the calculation of the Christian life. That's the cost of following Jesus. In the short term, it might cost me my reputation. It might cost me some friendships. It might even cost me my job. But I'm going to be faithful to Jesus because the reward in the end far outweighs whatever minor suffering we might incur in the short term. So don't be afraid. Do the right thing every time. Because even when the fear of man lurks in the corners of our heart, if we do what is right, then we can have a clear conscience before God. And that's worth far more than any job or any friendship. But do you know the best remedy for the fear of man? Uh, Some of us have been talking about the fear of man uh, lately. The best remedy for the fear of man is the fear of God. Now, you don't see that phrase explicitly here in uh, 1 Peter, but he uses a different phrase that's actually synonymous. He says, honor Christ in verse 15. Honor Christ. Okay? Uh, Now, if you have a reference Bible or a study Bible, you'll actually see that this is an allusion to an Old Testament passage. Okay? Isaiah chapter 8. Now, 700 years before Peter was writing his letter, there was another group of people that was afraid. Uh, This time, it was the people of Jerusalem because there were two armies that had come to attack them. The northern kingdom and the Assyrians had teamed up, and they were going to come and attack Jerusalem. So these people feared for their very lives, okay? There's a lot of fear of what might happen next when there's an army outside your gate ready to attack, Well, the king didn't trust God. The king didn't think that God was powerful enough to save. He trusted in other things. And as he trusted in other things, he became more and more fearful, more and more paranoid, more and more unstable. It's what the fear of man does to you. It's a progression. It intensifies over time until you become unstable. And you start to do foolish and wicked things out of the fear of man. And that's what happened. And so he maneuvered to form his own political military alliance with pagans, something God had told him not to do. Uh, but he chose poorly in that situation. But while the enemies were still outside the gate, the Lord came and spoke to the prophet Isaiah. He acknowledged the king is not going to do what's right in this situation. But Isaiah, I want you to do what's right. He said, Don't be afraid of these armies, the Lord will deal with your enemies. You just remain faithful. You just keep trusting and I will deal with them. Even if everyone around you is willing to forsake me and everyone around me, everyone around you is willing to do something foolish out of the fear of man, you keep trusting me. And this is what he said in Isaiah chapter 8, if we can skip ahead in the slides here. Isaiah chapter 8. He said, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him You shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will be a sanctuary for you. And sure enough, the Lord dealt with their enemies that day. And so Peter is drawing on what the Lord had previously said to Isaiah to speak to his readers in his day. It's not that there's an army outside the gate that threatens us, but it's simply the fact that as Christians, we're a minority in our culture. And we face opposition from that culture. And in the same way, uh, the people in Jerusalem were not to fear those armies. We're not to fear the people around us either. Instead, we should fear God. That's what he means by honor Christ the Lord as holy. What does he mean? Fear God rather than people. Recognize that Christ himself is God He's the son of God who reigns in power, and everything is subjected to him. One day, he's the one who's going to come and judge the living and the dead, including every person that you're currently fearing. That's the reality. So don't let the fear of other people make you anxious or paranoid or unstable. Don't let the uncertainty of tomorrow make you crazy. Because while tomorrow may be uncertain to us, it's not uncertain to Christ. Not only is he sovereign over all of these things, but he's been there before and he knows what it's like. To honor Christ as holy means believing that he is the one in control of my situation. He's sovereign even over those people that I fear are going to oppose me. And because he is on my side, as the psalmist says, I don't need to be afraid. What can man ultimately do to me? And not only is Jesus in control of my present situation, he's promised a glorious inheritance. Not only has he promised it, he's secured it by his own blood. That's where Peter began his letter. We have a glorious inheritance awaiting us as Christians. An inheritance that can neither perish, spoil, or fade. And so even if they kill me, even if these people that I'm afraid of do the worst they can do to me, it won't matter in the end because I've got Jesus. I've got a great reward, and that changes the way we face our fears, doesn't it? The way we face the uncertainty of tomorrow. See, the world doesn't know that kind of confidence. The world is largely governed by their fears, okay? Uh, And maybe some of you have been there in your life where the fear of what other people think or trying to garner their approval, that just governs everything you think or say or do. Uh, That's how the world is, okay? And so, Peter tells us if we're going to honor Christ in such a way that we don't fear people in that way, that's going to stand out. People are going to take notice. How is it that you can keep doing what you believe to be right when you face constant opposition, constant suffering? How can you still keep doing that? Let me tell you, I've got a greater hope. I'm not concerned about what people might say or do to me now. Because I've got a hope in Jesus that transcends even this very life. And so, as we think about this verse, verse 15, he says, Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, we often think of this verse in the context of apologetics. Okay, apologetics is making a defense of the faith. I don't think it's wrong. Uh, Apologetics is a great discipline. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't uh, examined some of these tough questions, to examine them. But I don't actually think that's what he's talking about in this verse. He's not saying you need to have arguments for the existence of God. He's not saying you need to have an answer to the problem of evil. What he's saying in this verse is, if you persist in righteousness, in doing what's right with a clear conscience, regardless of the opposition you face... You just need to be able to say why you do that. Why do you still hold fast to the truth of God in the face of opposition? Well, it could be a whole host of reasons. But one, certainly, is this glorious hope that we're promised. That I don't need to have the popularity or the approval of the world. I don't even need to have the approval of, you know, the people closest to me. I need to live for the approval of God and God alone. And if we can give an answer like that, with gentleness and respect, then God will be pleased and we will have a great reward. Now, one of the things I love about First Peter, he doesn't just leave his commands in the abstract, okay? Uh, he gives us clear commands at several points throughout this letter, but just about every group of major commands that he issues in this letter is followed up with support From Jesus' own life and work. Every imperative is grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's true here too. Everything comes back to Jesus. And so that brings us to verse 18 to 22. Right? We can face tomorrow because Jesus lives. Now, Before we get into this paragraph, let me just acknowledge uh, there are some strange things in this paragraph, okay? Uh, When I read it a moment ago, or maybe you're looking at the text right now, you might think, what on earth is going on? Uh, Hold on tight. Okay, bear with me. We'll get to the hard stuff in a minute. Um, Just suffice to say, there are a lot of differing views. Uh, Good and godly people disagree about what this passage teaches. So if you're interested in those views, let me just encourage you Uh, In our library, we have two commentaries on 1 Peter, one by Ed Clowney that I mentioned earlier, and one by Wayne Grudem. So if you're interested in the differing views, I'd encourage you to check one of those out today. But let me just give you my view briefly, and we'll talk along the way about what it means for us today, okay? In this second paragraph, okay, these paragraphs are meant to be read together, he's drawing a parallel between our suffering and Christ's suffering. Notice in verse 18, the also, okay? Christ also suffered. So what he's saying is, you might be suffering for righteousness now. Christ also suffered. And not only did he suffer for what is right, but he is the righteous one who suffered, okay? He is the righteous who suffered for sins, that is, our sins, to bring the unrighteous, that is, us, to God. Okay, so his righteous suffering had a good and glorious outcome, which is our reconciliation with God. Okay, and let me just pause here too to say, if you're not a Christian here, uh, or maybe you're just exploring what Christianity is all about, really think about verse 18. Okay, if you take anything away from this morning, if you're not a believer, uh, look at verse 18, because this really is the essence of Christianity. If all the rest of world religions are trying to earn our way to God, okay, only Christianity said God came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ to bring us back into fellowship with him, back into a relationship with God, to save us, okay? So salvation is not that we are somehow righteous. Only Christ is righteous. We are the unrighteous that he had to come and bring back to God through his suffering, okay? So just a quick note on that. Please pay attention to this verse. But then as we think about our suffering as Christians, lest we be proud in thinking that somehow our suffering for righteousness somehow gives us a better standing with God, we need to be reminded that our suffering for what is right was preceded by Christ, and he did that because we couldn't do it on our own, okay? So there's no room for pride here. But, despite the worst suffering that human beings could inflict on Jesus, Jesus won the final victory, okay? Jesus suffered being put to death in the flesh. He died on the cross. But that's not the end of the story, right? Look at verse 18. He was put to death in the flesh, the worst suffering human beings could inflict on him. But he was made alive, In the spirit, Jesus won the victory over the worst they could do to him. You see the parallel? So don't fear the worst that people can do to you. Because if you're in Jesus, if you belong to Christ, then you're going to win the victory too. Okay, That's the parallel that Peter's drawing in this passage. Whatever the worst form of suffering, the kind that you most fear right now, Think about your worst fear when it, when it comes to other people. You know, sometimes you say, what's your worst fear? Well, being buried alive. Okay, well, not quite that, right? But like the worst suffering that you can imagine in your real life, someone doing to you. Imagine that and then think to yourself, I have victory over that because of what Jesus has done for me. Because his suffering has gone before me and he's seated at the right hand of God. Jesus suffered far worse than any of us ever will and he won the victory and because he won the victory if we belong to him his victory is ours his victory becomes ours because Jesus lives we can face tomorrow amen Jesus victory over the forces of evil in the resurrection gives us a real hope that our suffering will not be the end of our story but that we too will experience resurrection and victory, even as we suffer for righteousness. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky, okay? So bear with me. The next couple of verses, beginning of verse 19, explain what happened after Jesus rose from the dead, okay? The NIV actually helpfully expands the phrase in which they say after he was made alive. That's actually very helpful for understanding this passage. After Jesus was made alive, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Okay, that's the correct sense of the verse. Now, some of you might be familiar with the Apostles' Creed, okay? Uh, The Apostles' Creed, it's actually number 716 in your hymnal if you want to look at it later on. But there's a line in the Apostles' Creed about Jesus that says he descended into hell. And sometimes people use this verse here uh, as justification for that. Uh, That's actually not what's happening in this verse. There are other verses that kind of speak to that. But right here, what he's saying is, after Jesus rose, after he ascended into heaven, this is what happened. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in heaven. Okay? So, he was made alive in the spirit, that is, in the realm of the spirit. That's like heaven. Okay? So, we have... Uh, earth, which is the realm of the flesh, heaven, the realm of the spirit. Jesus was made alive in that realm. And he went and proclaimed to these spirits in prison. Okay, what, what's that talking about? What, what's happening here? Many questions. Questions abound. But let me just try and answer two briefly. Who are these spirits? I believe, based on verse 22, that these spirits are angelic beings that have been imprisoned since the time of Noah. There's more to it than that, but suffice to say, in context, I think these angelic beings that rebelled against God, they are the ones who have been imprisoned, and Jesus went and proclaimed to them. Now, what was his proclamation? His proclamation is the very victory that Peter's been talking about, okay? Uh, His proclamation was, I have conquered death. I've conquered the worst form of evil that the world could throw at me. Uh, This is an Easter Sunday sermon that Jesus is preaching to these spirits in prison. And again, think about the nature of the victory. Because the cross was not only the worst suffering that uh, rebellious humans could throw at Jesus, the cross is still also the tool of Satan to try and get rid of Jesus. So rebellious men and rebellious angels threw everything they had at Jesus on the cross and he rose victorious over the grave, okay? So it wasn't just that he uh, he, uh, triumphed over the powers of this world. He also triumphed over the powers of the angelic beings that rebelled against God, the demons, okay? And so though the cross was the worst suffering that they could throw at him, they couldn't defeat him. And again, if we are in Christ, the thing you fear the most cannot defeat you ultimately if you are in him. And so Christ goes and he proclaims the victory of his resurrection and the reconciliation of God and man that he secured. Now get this. That proclamation that Jesus made, he's drawing a parallel here, I believe that proclamation is the same as the defense that we can make to those who ask us for the hope that is in us. The same proclamation Jesus made to the spirits in prison is that he triumphed over death and evil and suffering. And we can give that same answer today. Why do you persist in doing what's right? Why do you still hold to the teachings of this ancient book when it's just so much easier to go with the culture? Well, I'll tell you why. Because no matter what suffering I might face, my Lord suffered worse and he's risen and ascended and seated at the right hand of God. So I don't have to fear what man can do to me because Jesus has triumphed over all of that. So if you want to honor Christ the Lord as holy this morning, this week, proclaim his victory in the resurrection. That's how we honor Christ the Lord as holy. I don't need to scheme and maneuver and try and secure my place in this world. I can trust that whatever opposition I face, that Jesus has triumphed over it. His victory is ours. And not only that, but you think about the nature of these fallen angels, these demons, and their rejection of God's authority, okay? It's not only that they rebelled, it's that they wanted to put God to shame, Okay, they wanted to triumph over God and put the gracious God who gave them their very existence to shame. Well, Jesus, as he goes into heaven to make this proclamation, in proclaiming his victory over them, he actually puts them to shame. Do you see the parallel? Our proclamation of Christ's victory done with gentleness and respect, with a good conscience, okay, that puts our enemies to shame. It might put them to shame now, you know, the heaping coals on their head sort of deal. Or it might put them to shame in the end. When Christ returns and he judges the living and the dead, we're going to be vindicated. Our victory is going to be proven on that day. But either way, the putting to shame of the enemies is not triumphing over them in some sort of uh, selfish, vindictive way. way. That's the way the world does it. Our putting our enemies to shame is proclaiming what Christ has done. And that's how he put his enemies to shame as well. Okay. A lot of confusing things in here. I hope you're tracking with the theme of Christ's victory uh, throughout this passage, though. Let's think for just a minute about Noah and the ark, okay? So how does this work? So Jesus ascended into heaven and he proclaimed to these spirits. I'm tracking with all of that. But then there's this thing about Noah and somehow that relates to baptism. What, what's going on there? Okay. Okay. Peter highlights that a very few people were saved on the ark. Eight people, okay? They were brought safely through water. Part of the fear of man that we experience is a result of being in the cultural minority, right? Uh, When Christians were in the majority, uh, there wasn't the same kind of fear of man. I mean, it was different, right? But it wasn't the same that that we fear when we're fearing somebody opposing us or causing us harm okay? Now, track with the logic here. Noah and his family were a few, only eight of them, against the rest of the world. And they faced persecution from all the people in their day, okay? Christians in Peter's day were very few, okay? Far fewer than today. Uh, they were a very significant minority, very small minority in their day. And Christians today though there are many of us, are still relatively in the minority, right? Uh, Even in our culture, we're in the minority. So what Peter's making the connection is, the few people that were saved on the boat are like the few people that are going to be saved today. You might face opposition in your day the way Noah and his family did in his day. But guess what? In the end, Noah and his family were saved. What's the implication then for us? Though we are few, we face opposition today as a minority, but we too will be saved in the end. It might not look good now, but wait till that day. It'll look a lot better. Okay? So Noah and his crew were saved through the waters of the flood. Now, the same water that brought judgment on the rebellious world is the same water that actually proved to be salvation for Noah as the boat sort of floated on the water till the waters receded to the dry land, okay? So what does that have to do then with baptism? The waters of the flood actually picture, it's like a type of the waters of baptism, okay? Think about what happens in baptism. Baptism. It's part of the reason I'm a Baptist, okay? I don't get the whole sprinkling thing. But the Baptists, right, we dunk them, right? We dunk them good, hopefully, all right? And there's a reason for that, okay? There's a reason for that. The water represents, in a sense, the waters of judgment, okay? So uh, think of what Paul says in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. My old self is crucified. So when we're dunked under the water in baptism, we are buried with Christ in death. Okay, that is the old person has been put to death in the flesh. Okay, we're crucified with Christ. If this was a real person, they'd probably be not doing so hot right now, okay? So that's that's the waters of judgment. But then we are raised to walk in newness of life, okay? And what is that picture of newness of life? Well, we typically think, well, we have a renewed life by the Holy Spirit. We're empowered to live righteously by the Holy Spirit. That's all gloriously true. But think about what else he's picturing in baptism, what we picture in baptism right up there. When you pass through the waters of judgment, you are actually identifying, picturing our union with Christ in his victory over death. You see? And it's not the water itself. It's not the removal of dirt from the body. It's our union with Christ who is victorious over death that gives us a clean conscience before God. Okay? So when he says baptism saves you, what he means is baptism picturing your union with Christ and his victory, which has been the theme of this whole paragraph, this whole section, Our union with him and his victory is what gives us a clean conscience before God. Okay? You track it with me? So it's a pledge to God of a clean conscience because of Jesus' resurrection that's pictured in baptism. It's not only that Jesus was vindicated through resurrection, but he has also ascended. Okay? Think about this for a minute. He has gone into heaven, verse 22, and he is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What does that mean? It means all the forces of evil in this world are subject to Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? It's good news that the things that I might fear the most are under his authority. Okay? And if we are in him, then our ultimate triumph means they don't have any ultimate authority over us. Okay? If we're in Christ, those things have been subjected to him. We don't need to be afraid of them. Okay? We don't need to fear them. And get this. Remember back in verse 18 when he says Christ suffered to bring us to God? Okay? It's not only that he reconciled the relationship. He did that. But picture Noah in the ark, right? The boat brought them to safety through the flood. Jesus brings us to God where he is seated. He has gone before us, but he has brought us with him in a sense, brought us with him to God at the right hand of the Father. This is why Paul can say in Ephesians 2, right? We have been raised. We have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Why? Because he has brought us with him. His victory is our victory. So we not only have victory over judgment and victory over whatever this world is going to throw at us, but we have the victory of being seated mysteriously with Christ now in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. And everything is subjected to him. So talk about confidence, right? Talk about a, a firm ground to stand on when the fear of man is dominating my heart. I can stand on this ground that Jesus is victorious and that everything is subject to him and one day he's going to come and judge the living and the dead and I'm going to have a clear conscience on that day. That's good news. So we don't need to fear what people can do to us. We don't need to fear the spiritual forces of evil. We've been brought with Christ God. I was trying to think of a good example of this, a good real life example, and uh, I actually came across this quote by a guy named Alexei Navalny. Uh, I don't know much about him, okay, so I can't say I endorse everything about him, just as a disclaimer before we get into it, but I think this quote actually embodies what Peter is talking about in this passage very well. Uh, Alexei Navalny was an opponent of Vladimir Putin in Russia, Uh, He was at one time poisoned, he was away and sort of found uh, refuge in Germany and he, he had been in other countries, but he voluntarily went back to Russia to oppose the government because he thought that was the right thing to do. But listen to this quote by Alexei Navalny. He said, if you want, I'll talk to you about God and salvation. He's ready to give a defense. The fact is that I am a Christian, which usually rather sets me up as an example for constant ridicule. Isn't that uh, what we face as Christians? The prospect of constant ridicule if we're actually bold about sharing our faith? Sets me up as an example for constant ridicule in the Anti-Corruption Foundation. That's his, his organization. Because mostly our people are atheists. And I was once quite a militant atheist myself. But now I am a believer. And that helps me a lot in my activities because everything becomes much, much easier. I think about things less. He's not afraid of people. There are fewer dilemmas in my life because there is a book right here in which in general it is more or less clearly written what action to take in every situation. It's not always easy to follow this book, of course, but I'm actually trying. And so while certainly not really enjoying the place where I am, as soon as he landed back in Russia, he was put in prison, I have no regrets about coming back or about what I am doing. It's fine because I did the right thing. Do the right thing. Don't fear being persecuted for what is right, for righteousness' sake. On the contrary, I feel a real kind of satisfaction because at some difficult moment, I did as required by the instructions and did not betray the commandment. Alexei Navalny died earlier this month in a prison in Russia. Think about a testimony of someone who didn't fear what people could do to him. But he trusted the commandment to do what was right. And I would venture to say he trusted the promise of Jesus' victory and the certainty of our victory too. So my prayer for us is this. May we at South Church honor Christ as holy. May we fear him and put our trust in him. May we rejoice in his victory that frees us from the fear of man and assures us of our ultimate victory. Let's pray. Our Father, this is a difficult passage to understand. But oh Lord, I pray that the clear thing this morning would be that we don't have to fear what tomorrow brings because Jesus lives and reigns together with you and the Holy Spirit forever and ever, world without end. God, I pray that we would rest and have confidence in his victory to face whatever challenges might be awaiting us. Lord, we don't know what this week is gonna hold. We don't know what this month or this year is gonna hold for us. But we look to you, our eyes are on you, trusting that because Jesus is there reigning at your right hand, that one day we will see our glorious victory in the fullness of your kingdom. Lord, give us grace today to live in a way that you are well-pleased. We ask in Christ's name, amen.